To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. This episode is dedicated to the nonprofit group internationalforgiveness.com, where you can learn about how forgiveness is not for the person you're forgiving, it's for you, and how forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation, and yet forgiving can free you from the burden of resentment. Psychologist Dr. Leslie Becker Phelps is dedicated to helping people understand themselves and what they need to do to become emotionally and psychologically healthy. She has authored Bouncing Back from Rejection and Insecure in Love. And she has a blog in psychology today called Making Change and hosts her own YouTube channel. She treats individuals and couples in her clinical practice and offers guided self-help consultations internationally for those interested in her work. To learn more about her, visit www.drbecker-phelps.com. Dr. Becker Phelps, hello. Hello there. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to, uh, to be talking with you this morning. It's very nice to talk to you, and we have met before, and we've presented together before, and I really appreciate you, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you truly for, uh, for inviting me. I have a quick personal question before we get started. Absolutely. You know I recently got married in 2020. Mm-hmm. And I put a lot of time and thought into what to do with my last name. And <laughs> after a lot of time and thought, I decided to keep the Miller so I could still be connected with my children and also add his name, Clark, with a space in between. So I'm Alexandra Miller Clark. And I noticed that you hyphenate your name, and I'm wondering how you made that decision. Yeah, good question. I actually spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do, too. And I honestly didn't consider the alternative you picked. But I knew I needed to keep Becker because so many people knew me as as Dr. Becker um, and the work that I had been doing to that point. But I also I wanted to take on my husband's name personally. And also, if we were going to have children, uh, I wanted to share you know, the, the last name with them. Yes. And I will tell you, when it comes to children, we hit the lottery. Oh. So, you know, we got married and we want to start a family. Yes. But we're having trouble getting pregnant. Um, so to make a long story short, we decided to adopt. And I mean, I, I'll tell you, we didn't exactly start young. So we, we knew that if we had a child, we would want the child to have a sibling. So we thought, oh, it would be great if we could have twins. <sighs> Um, but you can't exactly order up twins when you're adopting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, so we were looking into it. We were just about to go uh, sign on the dotted line with an agency, and we got a call from family, and they had a friend who had a young adult, who knew of a young adolescent girl or had a young adolescent girl who had gotten pregnant and couldn't raise the child. So this was not the adoption agency. Not the adoption agency. It was just. Good fortune. I know you have twins. 
Well, here's the thing. So we were told, think about this, it's 2001, Mm -hmm. mid-September. Think of what happened on September 11th, 2001. Yes. So mid-September, we found out she was interested in adopting a child. So we talked with her. So it's mid-September. Mid-October, we were told that she wanted us to be the adoptive parents. So we had about a month to just know that we were going to be the adoptive parents. We were very excited. That's mid-October. Maybe 10 days later or so, November 1st, we were, she called up and she was so nervous. She thought we weren't going to want to do it anymore. She said, um, I just found out I'm having twins. You still want to adopt. And we were doing our little, like, you know, dance. We were so excited. So that's November 1st. Amazing. November 19th, they were born. So we knew from uh, mid-October to November we were going to adopt. November 1st, 18 days later, we had twins. Amazing. And you got exactly what you wanted. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Yeah. When were they born? Uh, November 19th. <gasps> I didn't know she was so close. Yeah. November 1st, she found out she was had twins. November 19th, she gave birth. Oh, my goodness. It was crazy. Wow. And as you might imagine, the airports were crazy because, you know, it was soon after 9-11. So, um, like I said, it was like hitting the lottery. Oh, yeah. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Makes me happy to even think about it. Yes. My oldest is about their age. Oh, really? Yeah. She was born in 2002. Mm-hmm. Yes. So now she's in college. Now she's away. So we are going to talk about attachment theory, which is your specialty. I've only touched upon that briefly in actually the episode called Launching Children and Letting Go, where I do talk about my oldest child. Mm. So I'm excited to share that with listeners your expertise in that area. And also you recently wrote that book, Bouncing Back from Rejection. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe we could start, I have a question about rejection sensitive people. Sure. In your book, you said that people that are rejection sensitive are likely to do these three things. Number one, withdraw socially. Number two, constantly present themselves in a positive light, such as being extremely kind and caring. Or three, become a perfectionist and try to be perfect so that they don't get rejected. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to this? Well, I think it's, you know, you introduced me saying, you know, my focus is on attachment. And it really is based in attachment, the way people connect. And it's which I, I see is um, sitting on the foundation of how you relate to yourself and how you relate to other people. Yes. Those are the two pieces. You take those two pieces and you put them together and you, do, you have somebody's attachment style. Yes. So when someone is sensitive, no, first of all, let me back up. Yeah. Nobody likes rejection. So it doesn't just mean like, oh, if you don't like rejection, <laughs> it's an issue because it's, it's human, right? Mm-hmm. But the sensitivity is when even small rejections or maybe it's an, an ambiguous situation, you just take it as a rejection, you're just sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of based in this sense that there's something not okay about you. So you're quick to read that in or feel overwhelmed. If there, you, you experience even a small rejection, it just feels like it's a confirmation that there's something wrong with you. So that's based in your, your attachment style. So that's the how you relate to yourself. 
And then how you relate to others, one thing that creates insecurity is when you see other people as not emotionally available to you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you don't want to get rejected. So you might pull in, you might isolate. Well, the other thing is, is what you might do is almost the opposite of that. You pour yourself into getting other people to really like you or respect you. You try to earn their love or, or approval. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the, the flip side of that. But again, it's based on an expectation that you're going to be rejected and trying to keep that at a distance. And for some people, you, you described really well in your book, the model of self and the model of others. And that's what you're talking about and how it leads to mm-hmm. certain attachment styles. Can you give a little more detail about how it leads to the different attachment styles? Sure. So your model of self is the way you view yourself, right? And it's a it's a range. It's from I feel loved and accepted and valued, and then all the way across the range to I feel unloved, I'm unworthy, having no value. So you could be anywhere along that range. So that's model of self. Yeah. And the model of others is viewing other people as either you know emotionally available and there and supportive and valuing you, you know, that they see you that way. And again, it's a whole range all mm-hmm. the way to them being um, emotionally unavailable. Mm-hmm. And that is just not interested or even hostile towards you. So you have those two things. And when you put them together, I always find it easier on paper because you can like draw the grid of putting them together. Yeah, you have lots of good grids in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's kind of hard to, to me to like see in my head, but what I do is, you know, you cross them at like two axes, and what you come up with is four different categories, and those are our basic four attachment styles. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I work with people and everybody wants to know what their attachment style is, we can talk about it, but really what I focus on are those model of self and model of others because I find it so helpful in trying to understand yourself and heal. But back to your question. Mm. So if you have a model of self where you feel loved and accepted and valued, and you have a model of others as emotionally available to you, you put those together and then you are securely attached. And what that means is if you have struggles and you're having whatever difficulties, you have a sense that you can turn to yourself because you feel good about yourself and you're a way that you're able to manage it and you can turn to others because you think they're going to be available. Mm-hmm. And so you're able to balance that self and others and have kind of an interdependent relationship. These people are very strong. They're very resilient. They are not going to be rejection sensitive. Again, it doesn't mean that they like rejection, mm-hmm. but they're able to, to bounce back from it. So that's your, your securely attached person. And that's like 60% of people? About uh, 60%. Yeah. Yeah, approximately. And what's interesting is they've done research all around the globe, and it holds. So this is this is um, not just like a, um, a theory in your mind, yeah. but it's biologically wired in. I mean, our way of understanding it is with theory. But the need to connect is biologically wired in, and so it is interesting to see that it's the same cross-culturally. That is amazing. Yeah, interesting. You also gave a resource for people to take a test to determine their attachment style. That's on your website, right? Chris Fraley's survey? Yeah, there's a link to Chris Fraley's work and he has a nice uh, survey they can take and uh, you know, it gives you information about what your attachment style is. But you can figure it out on your own. 
you know, simply by kind of having a sense of where am I, you know, if you were to draw a line out and just draw, draw out a line, anchor it on both sides and say from unworthy on one side and worthy on the other or unlovable and lovable and kind of think, where am I along that line? And if it's closer to the lovable, and then you do another line where you look at other people as being emotionally unavailable to available. And they they form a cross just for listeners. Right. One goes vertical, one goes horizontal like a cross. Right. And if you are more towards seeing people as emotionally available, that tells you that you are right in that secure attachment area. One thing that's, I think, sometimes confusing for people is that, you know, there's four attachment styles and people think, okay, which of the four attachment styles am I? But the truth is, they're not categorically different. It's not like everybody with a secure attachment style looks the same because each, each piece of this is a range. So you could be like a securely attached person who maybe has some struggles within themselves or securely attached person who looks to others but is kind of hesitant or not 100% convinced that they can rely on others. Mm -hmm. So it can look very different in different people and your attachment style can be different with different people in your life or in different domains of your life. And in addition to that, to make this more complicated, it can change over the course of your life. Which is important because what that means is if you're insecurely attached through uh, making changes and growth and healing, it can change and you can move towards a more secure attachment style. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. They can change, right? There's (laughs) hope. There's hope. Absolutely. You haven't mentioned the avoidant attachment style. Right. So actually, I have all I mentioned was the secure attachment style. Yes. So somebody who's anxiously attached or has a preoccupied attachment style. So someone who's preoccupied, what what happens here is if you feel you're not worthy or there's something wrong, you feel defective, um, there's something wrong with you, you're inadequate, something along those lines. You feel that, but you see other people as a resource you can reach out to who can help you. Okay, so now you're thinking, oh, I'm having a really hard time. I can't help myself. I'm not capable. I don't know how to manage things, but I can reach out to other people, which is great, except here's the rub. If you feel unworthy, you're going to have the fear that the other people, even though maybe they could help, they may not want to help you because you feel unworthy. So what happens is you may find that you are like, the nicest person in the world, nothing wrong with being nice, mm-hmm. but you're, you're trying to earn people's approval or you're really focused on money or you're really focused on being uh, socially, you know, high up in the hierarchy, whatever it is, you may find yourself focused on these things as a way to try to earn someone's love and you become preoccupied with that. Thus the preoccupied attachment style. Um, you could lose yourself to trying to take care of others and that really can backfire on you. You like calling it preoccupied versus anxious, I notice. Well, they're actually somewhat different. Anxious is more general because you can be anxiously attached and then um, you can feel like you're not okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then just in relation to yourself, you have anxiety just being in the world. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, if you see other people as emotionally available, you're going to become preoccupied with trying to earn 
people's caring. Uh If people are not emotionally available and you don't feel good about yourself, now you're in a fearful avoidance. Oh, okay. So both fearful avoidant and preoccupied are both anxious attachment styles. Hmm. But the fearful avoidant, that's really tough because what that means is when you're struggling, you feel threatened in some way or having a hard time, you try to turn to yourself, but you feel not capable of it. You try to turn to others, but you don't think they'll be there for you or they'll be harsh to you. And you end up trying to do both things and it can be very disruptive. But fortunately, not as many people have, many fewer people have that attachment style, but um, it causes a lot of pain, a lot of disruption in relationships and... uh, For these people, life's real hard. And and if your listeners, if you feel like you connect with that, I would really encourage anybody who really connects with that to get some therapy and support so you can do some serious healing because you don't have to live with that kind of disruption in your relationships with other people or with yourself. Mm -hmm. I've read some authors seem to have very little hope for anyone in the avoidant category. Have you noticed that? So the avoidant category, I have not addressed. So again, avoidant is the broader term for anybody who feels more positively about themselves, but is avoiding, so they're avoiding others because they see other people as emotionally not available to them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think of it as dismissing, the dismissing attachment style. Because what happens for these people is... From a young age, emotionally speaking, even people who are treated well have loving parents, but for whatever reason, at a young age, they have the sense that they need to take care of themselves. They don't look to their caregivers for emotional support. Okay, so they turn inward. These are kids who, as toddlers, mom comes, mom goes. They just focus on their playing, and they don't seem to get upset. Inside, they might be upset and feel distressed, but they just take care of stuff. So they are dismissing of their own feelings. They override it in order to engage in the world. And there are lots of reasons. I thought you were very sensitive in explaining that sometimes that happens because the parents themselves, maybe they have two jobs, you know, maybe they're just not available. Right. But it could be that they've got a really, really great job and they're not available. Right. I mean, there's so many, there's so many, and I, I, in my book, I know this divert this a little bit, but I, I think it's really important. This isn't about blaming parents. Right. So much of people's dislike of attachment theory is because it's like bl- parent blaming. And it's not about that because first of all, that doesn't help anybody. Right. And there are so many elements that go into this that it doesn't even make sense. So it could be, you know, a parent was very ill and that they couldn't attend to the child. Mm-hmm. The child is born with, say, Asperger's and it's hard to connect. Mm-hmm. Or ADHD, a significant ADHD may make it hard to connect. There's so many, or the child is ill. Multiple. You know, right. or, or they have a sibling who was really ill. There's so many reasons. So this isn't, this isn't about blaming, but it is about trying to understand your experience. Mm-hmm. So if you're experiencing, going back to the dismissing attachment style, if your experience was you, for whatever the reasons are, would override how you were feeling, just try to minimize any emotions, keep them at a distance so that you can, you dismiss your emotions so you can focus on what you need to in the world. Then you don't see other people as people you could rely on. Either you, you're, you've learned that they're not able to be there for you in that way, mm-hmm. or they're hostile towards you, or they're just not there. Mm -hmm. like physically there, whatever the reason is, you know, so then you develop in your personal style, 
you're dismissing of the help other people might offer you or the ways they might be there for you because you don't trust it. Yes, you don't try because growing up your needs were not met. So you learn not to even ask anymore. Exactly, you yeah. pull back. And by the way, that can happen. I, I didn't mean to like say it's just working parents. It could be parents that are home, but emotionally not available, emotionally in their own world too. Right, so for so, yeah. for so many reasons. Yeah. And you know what? Let's say let's say it's a situation where a parent really is, say, um, you know, it's not because of any of these other reasons. They're just emotionally not available. Well, what was going on with them that they're not available? Right. Well, they grew up in a situation where they weren't attended to. And so mm-hmm. they were trying to cope. And this is the best way they knew how to cope. Yeah. So it doesn't even it doesn't have to be looked at as malicious. Right. Right. And yet. Even if it's not malicious, the child still has their experience and it's important to know that it's okay to be upset about that. Maybe angry with your parents because you felt rejected or or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is you're experiencing is okay. The more we can understand where your struggles are coming from and then sometimes understand where your parents' struggles were coming from, then that allows for empathy. It allows for compassion. It allows for growth. It's not about getting anybody off the hook. It's just about understanding and growth and getting to a place where you feel like you can live a life where you have this positive this sense of well-being. Yes, that's right. So in, in answer to your question, I, you know, people are individuals. I have certainly worked with people, many people who had a more dismissing style, maybe not really extreme, but they lean toward just dismissing but they came in because either a spouse dragged them in mm-hmm. and they want to be in a happy marriage or they realize over time that they feel something's not right. Maybe they feel restless, they feel bored, something's not right. And what it is is they're really feeling lonely. Mm-hmm. They're feeling the lack of connection. And if they're feeling that, then we can help them get to the point of seeing it, understanding it, connecting with it. And then moving towards um, developing more connection in their lives within themselves and with other people. You talk about, as a starting point, the importance of people reconnecting with their bodies. Yeah. And can you give some examples of how people can reconnect with their bodies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The simplest way is to start paying attention to your body. I mean, so an example of it, it happening where somebody was not, and I had it in couples therapy a couple of times I've had this, and um, it did happen to be the husband in most situations, but it can happen to women too. They were interacting, and clearly the, the man looked sad. He looked upset. He had a tear running down his face and said, how are you feeling? I'm nothing. <laughs> I said, you're not feeling anything? No. So then I said, well, you know, I'm noticing there's a tear running down your face. This looked like touch the face and the look. They said, yeah. <laughs> and they just didn't know what to do with it. Hmm. So the first thing you want to do is you want to pay attention. Now, in that situation, in one of them, once I brought their attention to it, they were able to say, yeah, I, I guess I'm sad. And then we could talk about it. The other one really didn't know. And I kind of said, you know, I would imagine if I heard the thing said that you just heard from your wife, that I would feel really sad. It would make me sad because of whatever. And then he was able to say, yeah. Yeah, so then, you know, you can grow from there. As far as for your listeners, if you're having a moment when you're really struggling, you may just want to pay attention to your body. 
sometimes it's enough just to think that. You may realize, oh, I have this churning in my stomach or my chest is tight mm. or my, I can't swallow so well. So it's hard for you to even identify that. You can do like a body scan. Start with your toes and slowly go up through your body, up your legs, into your belly, your chest, all the way to the top of your head. And you just slowly go through and just pay attention to anything you notice. Even if it's it's just a small thing, maybe there's a little bit of fluttering in your stomach, you know, a little bit of tension. You might notice as you pay attention, my gosh, my hands are in a fist. I didn't even realize that. Mm-hmm. Because there's all kinds of things we do. Yeah. And if we're not looking to our bodies, we don't notice it. I find it amazing, especially with working with patients that are dealing with anger, how helpful it is to help them connect with their bodies mm-hmm. through journaling and having them keep an anger journal. And as part of that, they have to say, where was it in my body mm-hmm. to notice? Oh, it was in my it often is in their hands, you know, or it was in my throat. Right. And that helps them to actually become more aware of the anger before it comes out. Right. As they learn where it sits in their body. So I, I will share with you, and this is um first time I've been saying this because I am currently working on a workbook to go with the first book that I wrote, Insecure in Love. But there's an exercise that is going to be in there that is fascinating. What some research has found is that, mm-hmm. first of all, emotions, you know, they, they come from within our body, right? Physical. That's why we're talking about sensations. That children physically don't differentiate emotions the way adults do. It's a broader feeling. And as you get older, it moves to different parts of your body. You tend to feel different emotions in different places. So what I do is I have like a outline of a person, right? Just a simple outline, nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. And you think like when you're feeling something, where do I feel it in my body? And you color in the place where you feel it. And so you can see, you can start to see where you feel in your body. Mm-hmm. And if you, you do that over time, you can start to see the pattern. And if you can then label like, oh, when I feel that, what emotions go with that? Oh, that's anger. And you can write that down on that body and what you'll start to notice is you feel the emotions in particular places in your body and you can start to be more aware of it. And then once you're aware of your sensations, as I started to say, a lot of times that's a portal to knowing what our emotions are. Yeah. And honestly, it's it's a lot of times it's it's hard to know what our emotions are, especially when we're overwhelmed. So I encourage people to look at a list of emotions. And I provide a list of emotions for people to just point, what are my different emotions? And it gets you out of the emotion for the moment, but you can see what all your different emotions are. And then you can choose to pay attention to that and step back into the experience to really allow for your experience. I loved your exercise called sit with your emotions. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so great about how you have people attend to different emotions. Can you talk about what that is? Absolutely. Um, and if I can back up for a moment, what, I, what I'm really, the broad strokes of this is I'm really encouraging people to develop compassionate self-awareness. Mm. Okay. So when you are self-aware, it's, it's kind of a vague term, self-aware. So I encourage people to be aware in, on these different, in these different domains. I use the, the acronym STEAM, yeah. but to be self-aware with sensations, thoughts, E is for emotions, A is for actions, M is for mentalizing. We can talk about that later. That's the one that doesn't necessarily make sense right up front. 
But when you can be aware in these different domains of awareness, you are developing a very rich narrative of yourself, a very rich understanding of yourself. And with that level of understanding and connection to yourself, you can then have empathy for yourself. You can have compassion for your own struggles, and that's where healing goes. Mm. So that's the purpose of us looking at the sensations, thoughts, emotions, okay? So sitting with emotions. I haven't forgotten your question. Um, yeah. Sitting with emotions. So let's just say you're somebody who really doesn't connect with your emotions. Um, and I have a lot of people come in. They just really don't know what they're feeling. There's a lot of times I ask, and they'll tell me what they're thinking. I say, well, that's, you know, that's a thought that you think that this other person is going to reject you or they have rejected you. But what are the emotions? And they don't know. So a lot of times we start with the sensations, bring them notice in their body, and then let's say they notice tightness in their chest. And I say, you know, what's that about? And they're able to be like, oh, wow, it's connected with fear. Great, we've named the fear. Now you want to sit with the emotion because it's not enough to name it intellectually. Mm-hmm. We've got to be able to connect with our experience. So you sit down, just take a few breaths to really kind of settle into your quiet, undisturbed space. You sit down and you may want to come back, be aware of the sensations. Sometimes that helps you reconnect, but the idea is to connect with the emotion, let's say fear in the situation, and you allow yourself to be with it. And what you may find is you want to jump out of it. You start thinking about things. You're like, oh, there I go thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back and let me just be aware of this experience. And you stay with it. And you let it be. And what you may find is fear moves into rage or anger. Or fear starts to get more intense as you sit with it. Or it might get more intense and then it may settle down and get less intense. So what you notice is you're really... Observing life, yes, the fear is there, but really I'm feeling okay. I don't like the feeling of fear, but I'm not afraid of the fear. I'm not trying to run from it. I'm able to be with it. And that's what you want to do is you want to be able to feel at home within yourself with whatever emotions you're feeling, even if they're uncomfortable or painful ones. You gave a couple of examples What's interesting about this exercise to me is that people can have multiple emotions all at once about a situation or they can even have conflicting emotions. Mm -hmm. But with this exercise, you have people hone in on one emotion at a time. You had such good examples. Like I think there was a woman who had a friend that always wanted to borrow money from her. Mm -hmm. And she had, what were her two conflicting emotions? Hmm. I wrote this some time ago. Does sound familiar. (laughs) So, you know what? I think my guess is, so if I imagine someone, because I've seen that kind of scenario play out, somebody wants to lend someone money because they want to be a good friend and they feel caring towards the person, right? So they're feeling that caring, but then they're also feeling taken advantage of. They start feeling angry. Mm -hmm. But then... Yes. They feel like that's not okay to be angry. Now they're angry with themselves for being angry with the person. <laughs> yes. and, you know, you, you, then you might feel shame yeah. because you're not a good person anymore. And so it can really spiral. And if you find that that happens, you have all these different emotions and it just feels you know, kind of too much. I would go back to looking at the list of emotions and naming them, right? So now you've provided some distance. If you're overwhelmed by the feelings you're having, you provide some distance, you label them, and then you pick one, the one that seems 
like it's important for you to go to. And you focus on the one and you allow yourself to have that experience. That's the whole thing is all of us allowing ourselves to have the emotions and not tell them to go away. And I have to tell you that just maybe a day or two before I read this part in your book, Mm -hmm. a patient brought in Rumi's poem, The Guest House. Uh Uh-huh, I love that poem. And then, I mean, so shortly after, I ran into that poem again in your book, and it's so fantastic. Rumi is so amazing. Amazing. Um, I've mentioned him on the show before. Yeah. He's a Sufi Muslim from the 1200s from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I have the poem here. I thought it might be nice to read it. I think it would be wonderful because I love that poem, which is why I included it in my book. Yeah. Okay, so here it is. The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Hmm. I think it's wonderful. Yes. I often use that um, as an idea of where we want to get to. Yes, yes. Such wisdom. And it's such a hard thing for a lot of us to imagine to just allow all of our emotions to come through us, to flow through. Like People will often say to me, well, why should I feel that? It's just going to upset me. How does that help? And this is very, it's a valid question. How will it help you to allow in the emotions when they're painful? The way that it helps is it enables you to really connect with your full experience. We're humans. And as humans, we do have painful experiences. And if you don't let them in, then you're rejecting a part of yourself. And you can never feel whole. And that's where the pain is, then that's where the healing needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And so if we can see the pain and we can allow for it, we can then begin to attend to it and heal it. But we can't do that if we don't, if we just kind of try to reject it or push it away. That's right. And that's what I was going to say. The paradox is that if you reject it and push it away, it comes back and it comes back worse. <laughs> it, does. So. it does. You know, it's interesting because the, the awareness piece is hugely important. And I am a believer that most of the time, um, he, growth and healing, they take effort. We really have to give it focus. We have to be aware. So it just makes me think of there's a, there was one time in my whole career one time mm. when I miraculous, miraculously helped the person in a single session. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Does not, for those of you who are not therapists, I can tell you only in Hollywood does that happen. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> not the rest of us. Um, but she came in with postpartum depression. She had a baby. She was really depressed. I did a history. I'm like, she's solid in so many ways. She's just so depressed. So I said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and I want you to tell your husband that it is your doctor's order that you need to get sleep. 
I don't care what you get a babysitter in, you get a baby nurse, whatever you need to do, you need to sleep for the next week. And I want you to call me next Thursday. Just call me and tell me where you are. She called back. She's like, oh my gosh. Cause she was so depressed. I left that part out. She was really like so depressed. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I'm like, yeah, you needed sleep. So <laughs> that ties back yeah. to the awareness. See, if you can be aware that like, oh, when I'm really tired, this is what happens. Or I haven't slept or, oh, I'm getting hangry, right? But you have to know what the symptom signs are. You have to know you. And that's where we come back to, you know, my mind, the steam thing. You got to know all the domains of you because there's a lot that goes on in you. But if you can be self-aware, then you can provide yourself the empathy, the compassion. Mm -hmm. And compassion could be either just the caring, like, oh, my gosh, that's painful and hard to sit with. But it could be like, oh, my gosh, I haven't been getting sleep. I need to take care of myself. Compassion in action, you know. I need to take care of myself. So... You, you want to understand your struggles as human struggles, and that helps you back to this um, people who are rejection sensitive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you as a human being. You're just human. We're all human, and so you have these sensitivities, and there's reasons you have the sensitivities. And if you can see it, and you can understand it, and you can relate to it, and you can have compassion for it, you can grow. You can take the actions you need to take and you can heal and grow. In the action section of your book, you talked about some examples of what you called protesting rejection uh with our actions. I think I would like a little more about that. Some examples of what you mean by protesting rejection. Absolutely. So people who have a more anxious attachment style, or actually preoccupied. Remember we talked about preoccupied is when you don't feel mm-hmm. okay in you, but you see other people as possibly giving you the attention, the love, the caring you need. Mm-hmm. Okay, But you're afraid they're going to reject you and you're sensitive to it. So what happens for some people is they kind of naturally start to act in ways to try to pull for the comfort and support they want. And unfortunately, a lot of times, because they struggle so much in themselves, they don't always take in the support, so they still feel deprived, and then they keep reaching for it. Um, I kind of think of it as like if you had a malabsorption problem, you couldn't, say, absorb. I don't even know if this is really medically a, a real thing. Maybe one of your listeners could say it, but like you didn't absorb vitamin B or K or whatever it is. Uh-huh. And so it doesn't matter how much you eat because your body's not absorbing it. For some of these people, that they feel so not okay about themselves that they're not really absorbing the caring, huh. but they keep reaching for it. So what you have is, let's say, your girlfriend is out, maybe she's on a business trip, and you're really panicked that she's going to cheat on you. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, you reach out, you touch base with her, that's fine. But the protesting behaviors, when you're in your head, you're like, oh my gosh, she's going to leave me, and you start texting her 50 billion times. Or you call her, you keep calling. Or somebody you expect to be rejected, so you start playing games. Like you have a a boyfriend and you're afraid they're going to leave you, so you have flowers delivered to yourself so he can see that somebody else is interested. There's all these ways that we act (sighs) in an effort to get them to give you the attention and the caring that you're so very much wanting and feel like you need. That's the protest. Could you say that protesting is 
sort of like trying to control the situation? Maybe it is, but I was, because people, uh, there's so much around the idea of controlling. You're being a controlling person. It's not that so much as you're trying to pull for, you're trying to elicit caring. And you don't trust that it's going to happen. So you just keep trying to elicit it because you desperately need it. It's like needing water when you're parched. Maybe it feels more like a tantrum. It could be, in fact, a tantrum could be part of it. You something that happens and you get mm-hmm. upset and they're not showing caring and you're, and then you start like having an adult tantrum. That is one of the things that, that could happen. And you talk about that that's a reaction versus responding. Right. It's a reaction because it's like a reflex almost, right? You just go to it, but you're not mm-hmm. thinking about it. Because if you were to pause, right, and you were to gain the self-awareness and you say to yourself, wow, I'm feeling really anxious. My body's all jittery. I'm feeling anxious. I'm thinking that he's going to reject me and I need to get it back. And then you're like, wait a second, I'm in a panic. Do I have something to panic about? Well, no, he's you know been really kind and he's, he's here for me. And I can see, so even though I'm afraid he's going to reject me, I can see that he's actually being very caring and you can walk yourself through it. That's responding, right? Because you're really seeing the situation. You're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You're reflecting on, you know, where am I coming from? You're reflecting, oh, where's he coming from? Which, by the way, is the mentalizing and the steam that I mentioned earlier. You're understanding where people are coming from. And now you could really respond, not just react, but be responsive to what's happening. This is an example of how people should not always listen to their intuition. And in fact, the next guest I'm going to have next week is going to be on the topic of intuition. Mm -hmm. But if someone recognizes that they are rejection sensitive until they've done the work and the growth to really work on it, they can't just react to what they automatically get in their brains. No, what you will want to do is you want to take it seriously but pause and reflect on it. Take a few breaths to just calm your system down mm-hmm. and reflect on it. So actually, I'll give you an example. I was working with a woman some time ago, and actually this is a pretty common example, but she was, um, was just very anxious. She tended towards anxiety. We mm-hmm. had learned all the tools, gone through all the tools. She was doing much better. She went to the gym. She was on the stationary bike, and she started having panic like high anxiety panic. And so she got off the bike mm-hmm. and then she, fortunately she learned how to reflect and we'll go through that like the steam, right? So she, my sensations, what's happening? Okay, my heart's beating really fast. My thoughts, I'm, I'm thinking I might have a heart attack, but now she starts getting curious. Wait a second, my heart's beating fast. I might have a heart attack. Is that really what's happening? So for her actions, she starts, she was breathing shallow because, you know, she was like gulping for breath from the, the workout. Mm-hmm. So she starts deepening her breath and she chooses to wait. And then she puts it together and she's like, I know what this is. This is my body was just getting worked up because I was on the bike. It's not about anxiety. It's just, this is my body's reaction to being on the bike. And then she was able to see it and get it. And it felt right. And she calmed down and she could go forward with the exercising. Mm-hmm. Whereas before she would have been like ready to call 911 uh, or go to the doctor or something. Yeah. Listeners can apply your STEAM model to anything because it sounds like more of a health anxiety and illness anxiety thing this woman has. And you're using the STEAM model, which is from your book, mm-hmm. Bouncing Back from Rejection, to apply it to this situation. Yes, it just helps you be able to get that perspective so you can respond rather than just react. 
Yeah, it makes sense. You could apply it to many things. Many things, including the rejection yes. sensitivity, but to anything even beyond that. Yeah. Because when you are insecurely attached, a lot of times you're going to struggle with how you react to things. So you're, you're, you're not as flexible. So somebody who's more securely attached, they can reflect on things and they're very flexible in managing different situations. Mm-hmm. People who are insecurely attached are kind of stuck in the, there's something wrong with me or I can't rely on others. Mm-hmm. And remember the models of self, models of other, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of inflexible around those. And so by slowing it down, using steam, taking some breaths, reflecting, you're allowing a challenge to that set way of, of reacting. You're challenging and you're flexing it. You're developing more flexibility, psychically speaking. And that helps you get healthier. Yes. And flexibility is so important. Such a simple, I mean, more flexibility can solve a lot of problems, couldn't it? Dr. Becker Phelps. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I have another question. I have two more questions because I know we're running out of time. Sure. Rejection sensitive people have trouble balancing shoulds versus wants. And I'm wondering if you could talk to that. Yeah, so I should do this because this is going to make people love me. (laughs) I should do this. And I want to do this, but I can't do what I want because that makes me selfish. And then people aren't going to love me. Mm. That's a very common may not be the only way that that plays out, but that's a very common thing for people who struggle with an insecure attachment style. So when people say, I should do this, I will often say, you should according to whom? Because should is an outside thing. Even if you're playing it in your head, it's like an outside voice. Mm-hmm. And when you say you should do it, uh, where's it coming from? And is will this really benefit you? Like, what would the outcome of it be? And so you want to move it from a should to a want. You know, if I say, if your favorite ice cream is Rocky Road, and I said you should eat Rocky Road ice cream, it's kind of not as enjoyable as I want to have some Rocky Road ice cream, right? One's <laughs> directing you, and the other one, you could do what you want. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Even if the should is something you would want to do, we still want to move it from a should to a want. If you even want to, right? Right, even if you want to. Because you may not want to. You may not yeah. want to. You may not want to. Do you remember Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Mm-hmm. And he had the four quadrants. Mm-hmm. I remember that there was a quadrant that it was things that felt urgent, but they didn't feel important to you. Mm-hmm. So there was urgent and important, urgent and not important. Mm-hmm. It felt urgent because it was other people's priorities. Right. And that's a great distinction. And it can feel like, oh, I have to do this. I have to do this right away. And I guess, especially for rejection sensitive people who want to be pleasers, it's hard for them to say no. Right. And that's where it's really important to reflect on what's going on. What's your understanding of what's going on for the other person? Because a lot of times people want to please and they're reading something to the other person. The other person's not even demanding it or wanting it. You're just imagining because hmm. you can't do enough. You know, so sometimes it really is all within you and and feeling so insecure. But even if they want to, you need kind of, they want something from you. Is that a reasonable thing? Hmm. I have people who um, I'll give you an example. Uh, back in the day when everybody was driving to therapy rather than telehealth, although I have people coming back now, mm-hmm. sometimes people came from a long way away and they would come in. And they were late because of traffic Mm -hmm. and they were really upset and they were so afraid that I was going to be angry with them. 
maybe I wasn't going to want to treat them. And I'm like, okay, let's pause, you know, rather than just reassuring them. No, 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 I'm not angry. Rather than doing that, I'm like, okay, let's slow this down. You're coming to therapy. You left plenty early and you hit traffic that you couldn't predict. Yes. Okay. So you come into therapy. So you expect your therapist to be understanding and caring. So what do you imagine? I mean, what would you think of me as your therapist? If I, my reaction was kind of like, I don't care if you were caught in traffic. This is unacceptable and I don't want to see you. I mean, what would you think of me as a therapist? <laughs> and of course, they kind of mm-hmm. laughed and think, I'm a terrible therapist. Yeah. And so if I were going to have that reaction, you know, you're feeling like, oh, I did something wrong. But maybe it's me who did something wrong. Maybe it's not okay. And to try to, you know, really question those immediate reactions. Yes. Yes. That's much of what you seek to teach people through the book. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. If you could choose one thing that you regret that we missed in this conversation that you wouldn't want people to miss about what you're trying to teach through bouncing back from rejection, can you think of what that might be? I think we have covered a lot. I guess one thing that I would throw in there is it's easy to talk about this stuff, but when you're having a reaction, your body is, your sympathetic nervous system is is pouring out this energy. It's, you know, you're not going to be able to think straight. That's just part of how the human body works. Yeah. When you're in that heightened state, you're not going to be able to think straight. But if you can remember one thing, remember, learn how to do deep breathing diaphragmatic breathing or deep breathing, um, learn maybe a, a breathing technique, even as simple as, um, I'll just teach you real quick, mm-hmm. inhale, exhale. Just say to yourself, when you breathe in, inhale, when you breathe out, exhale. There's a lot more to breathing than that, but something that gets you to breathe, actually when you can do the deeper breathing, it ca- literally calms your nervous system and that will enable you to move from reacting to responding. It'll enable you to use the STEAM model and enable you to, to reflect and make those changes. There's other things you can do too, but you always have your breath with you. So that might be a helpful tip. I agree. That's the greatest go-to is to learn a wonderful breathing technique such as four in, six hold, eight out. That's another one. Yep. Yes. I always like square breathing. That's another good one square breathing or Bronx breathing. You're just slowing the breathing down. I know we don't have time to go into all these. That's probably a whole nother uh, podcast episode by itself. But it's true. It it will actually change your body into a more relaxed. It's better than walking away to do a conscious breathing. I don't know if we have time for this, but I'm going to throw it out there. Okay. So there was a situation I had many years ago where I use the square breathing, which is basically you breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for four, and hold for four. You just keep doing that. Mm-hmm. But I heard people saying you know, they, they did a face plant. I was walking into a house and I did a face plant in, into the tile floor and unfortunately broke uh, bones in my face. You did this? I did. It was terrible. I reached up. My hand went oh. in. You do not want your hand to go in when you go to touch your face. <gasps> so they took me to the emergency room oh. and it was painful, as you might imagine. I did the square breathing. And one thing is, is by counting, it helps keep you focused. And by breathing, it could help keep my body from being in as much of a panic mode as it could have been in. Not that I was like totally... It is meditative. You know, yes. I wasn't like totally chill, but but the breathing helped. It helped my body wow. stay calmer. It helped my focus stay calmer. It helped me not freak out. Oh. And to the best that I could, you know, move through the situation. And so 
I mean, I, people have all kinds of experiences that breathing helps with, but I just figured I'd throw that out there because that's, Whoa. you know, a powerful experience, right? Yeah. When did this happen? Yeah, they actually had to do reconstruction. I have like plates in my face. It's terrible. I have three, um, oh. three titanium plates in my face. Oh my goodness. Back in, yeah, 2012. Whoa. Yeah. So you just walked in and went down. My foot caught the door jam. I was wearing boots and the, the tip of the boot, which had like a metal tip, you know, sometimes they have those, the old boots would have metal tip or whatever. It caught the door yeah. jam and I don't remember, I, I might, I probably had my hands in my pockets. I don't remember, but I'm thinking, why wouldn't I put my hands out yeah. to save my face? I'm, I'm going to guess. I don't remember that, that my hands were in my pocket. Well, it happened. It, ha- it really it happened. happened. Oh, wow. Whew. Yeah. But the square helped you. Helped you get through it. The square breathing helped me get through it. Yeah. It really, you know, wasn't fixing my face, but it helped me get through it. Wow. So can you remind people how they can find you before we get off? Sure. My website, it's com. It's D-R-B-E-C-K-E-R hyphen P-H-E-L-P-S dot com. Loads of resources there for people. Oh, yeah. So I have lots of resources. If you go under um, books and blogs, you'll see, uh, you can click on, you can get access to the articles I've written over time, um, to videos, and under the books. If you go into each book, there's a, a link that says um, it says resources, mm-hmm. and you click on that, and you'll see the resources that go with each of the books. Even if you don't have the books, you can... Um, still gain from the resources. And I always like to tell people, if you'd like to get my book um, and, you know, money's an object, don't let money, or you just would prefer not to pay for it, you want to look at it, go to your local library. Pick it up from there. I mean, you can go to a bookstore, you can order it from Amazon, you can go to your library, take it on loan, you know, whatever it takes to be able to get that help. I just want to, you know, offer that out there to people. Yeah, that's very generous of you to share those resources on your website. Oh, one other thing. On my website, this is a really good one. In the menu, there's a tab that says CSA, mm-hmm. Compassionate Self-Awareness. You click on it. It's a page that describes how you can develop compassionate self-awareness. I include links to articles. I include links to videos. I have a form on there, like a worksheet kind of thing. Mm. You can work it all. Beautiful. I loved our conversation, Dr. Becker Phelps. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. This show is proud to offer free and open access to learning about psychology to listeners all over the world. If you have found any value from this or other episodes and would like to support the production costs of this show, visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Dr. Alexandra. That's Dr. Alexandra to buy her a coffee, leave a comment or share show ideas. Also support the show by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. Click on the Psychology America icon in your phone. Click See All Episodes and scroll down to the very bottom to find ratings and reviews. 